Welcome to the Scalar Learning Podcast, your central hub for all things related to education. Join us every episode for the most up-to-date tips and strategies on how to maximize student potential. Sit back, listen, and enjoy. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Scale It Learning Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Huzefa. And once again, if you're unaware, we are now releasing podcast episodes every Monday. So make sure to check back every Monday for new episodes. And we got a whole list of awesome authors, educators, and ed tech startups coming your way. Today is a very special day and a very special episode because... I have a pretty incredible guest. She is she has a PhD and she is an author of an amazing book, which we're going to talk about. And her name is Dr. Kay Otten. Kay Otten has worked with children with behavioral challenges for nearly 20 years as a classroom teacher, special educator, and behavioral specialist. She is co-founder of Camp Encourage, a highly acclaimed overnight camp for children with autism spectrum disorders. So today what we're going to do is we're going to talk all about her body of work, what she's done, and also for you parents out there listening, this is going to be an amazing episode for you as far as getting really insightful tips and helpful suggestions as far as how to deal with a lot of disruptive and potentially problematic behavior. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Dr. Kay Otten to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Okay, awesome. Well, I'm so happy that you've joined us amidst your very busy schedule. So can you first start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I actually started my career. I'm from a a very small town in southern Nebraska. It's about a thousand people. Um, I started my career after going to the University of Nebraska and getting a elementary education and child development degree as a second grade teacher. Um, I decided at that point that I wanted a little bit more diversity in my life and went to Houston, Texas and taught second grade. And that is where um, I got very interested in behavior management. Uh, Basically when I grew up, the only behavior management that was modeled for me was do what you're supposed to do, or you get in big trouble. And when you don't have a disability of any kind or specific, you know, neurological or psychological challenges that works fairly well. And I say works in, in quotation marks because most People, when they have a significant consequence that is a punishment, they usually can control their behavior and decide to behave. Well, that's what was modeled for me, what I did early on in my career, and then I moved to Texas. And what I found is I had a lot of kids with challenges, um, either socioeconomic challenges or neurological challenges. And so I just, out of sake of survival, um, became very interested in behavior. I ended up moving back home to Nebraska and getting a special ed degree. And spent a bulk of time um, in a program for kids with severe emotional and behavioral disorders. At the time, they were considered severe. This was in the 90s when pretty much if any kid had a behavior problem that wasn't easily redirected, they ended up in uh, a specialized classroom. So I was there for about seven years with a co-teacher, and she's also the co-author of the book, Jody. Now it's Tagle. At the time of the publishing, it was Tuttle. Um, And we had a great program. I saw a lot of success with a lot of kids with pretty significant um, challenges. And at that time, I got my master's at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln 
under the direction of John Mag, um, who is still one of my mentors today and learned a lot about cognitive behavioral interventions and more advanced techniques. Uh, at that time, I was getting lots of kids on the autism spectrum in my classroom and realized I didn't know enough about that particular population and so ended up uh, pursuing additional training in that area, uh, which brought me to Kansas City. I always make the joke that I never intended to be a PhD or a doctor, um, but when I called them, they said, uh, you already have your master's degree. Have you ever thought about getting a doctorate? And I said, absolutely not. I have no interest in that. And they said, well, we have a large national grant and we will pay you more than you're making teaching. So reinforcement works. I, that became my new goal. So I came to Kansas City and I did get a PhD in autism, emotional and behavioral disorders um, under the direction of Rich Simpson, another one of my mentors, and then stayed in the Kansas City area. Um, I worked for a little bit in not-for-profit and then ended up spending about 10 years in Lee Summit, Missouri, uh, employed by their school district as a full-time behavior specialist, an autism and behavior specialist. Um, so I stayed there until about three years ago when I decided I wanted some more flexibility. And I am now a professor at the University of Central Missouri in special education, and I've also become a board-certified behavior analyst. So I do a lot of uh, consulting with school districts, families, individuals on uh, managing challenging behavior. Wow, that's very so that's cool. that's me in a nutshell. Awesome. And I, I like that you started in second grade. I actually taught uh, a subsection of second grade math last year, and I'm making a math-related video course based on Singapore math right now. It's currently in production for second grade, so I, and I love that age. I just shot a math music video a couple uh, about a month ago. I'll send it to you, and it's a bunch of my second graders from my class are in the video kind of like jumping around and dancing. It's really fun. Oh, cool. Very yeah. cool. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about your book. And so your book is called How to Reach and Teach Children with Challenging Behavior. And I think there's a lot of really incredible suggestions as well as distinctions that are made in in your book. And I wanted to dive into some of these pieces and then we'll kind of parse it and, and hopefully pull out some really good nuggets that we can apply to pr uh, parenting. One of the things that I wanted to ask you as a general thing right off the bat is – we often notice as teachers, there's a little bit of a distinction, let's say, between how responsive or reactive kids are to, to when we apply, let's say, a certain set of rules versus parents. Like, for example, we can see that there can almost become like a resistance of sorts that can build up with parents, but it's, it's, it's a very different dynamic. Do you, you, you must notice that, I assume, and, and what, how, do, how do you usually modify strategies or advice for parents versus teachers? Right. Good question. Um, so the school and home environment are obviously very different. Um, so a lot of times you'll you'll have parents that say, well, they're not doing this at home, and that makes maybe the school defensive or um, have a difficult time applying similar strategies. And so I really, tr um, the behavior principles are the same, but I think you have to have the strategy fit the environment because, for example, um, a lot of times what triggers a problem behavior in the school environment is academics. So difficulty with academics and they want to escape or avoid. Well, that doesn't, you don't have those same types of uh, demands placed in the home setting. So you don't have the trigger that the same behaviors aren't going to happen. So I do a lot of um, education on, it's not a right or wrong thing. It's, it's different contexts and you have to make sure that you can match your context. Another thing that happens um, with parents is they have a difficult time um, waiting out what's called an extinction burst, which 
we all know that, you know, kids, I always liken it to the, the um, temper tantrum at the grocery store where the kid wants candy and we have a difficult time waiting the child out because either we have to go on with our day or we're embarrassed. And so a lot of times parents will find that they give in because they don't have the structure in their world that allows them to do the effective intervention at the time. So I don't have any children myself. I do have eight nieces and nephews. And so I find this is true with my sisters. I apply this a lot. I'm like, well, it's not that you're doing anything wrong. It's that your context doesn't support a particular strategy. So doing a, I always say you have to have a team approach and helping people understand various perspectives and how a home situation might be very different than a school situation. Let's Does d- that make sense? That, that, definitely, that definitely makes sense. Let's, I want to dive in a little bit deeper. So let, let's just take that example that you mentioned, a temper tantrum and a parent in a public place where a parent feels essentially pushed by maybe social pressure to give in, but and you said because they lack a certain structure. Let can you give us an example of a potential structure that might be implemented, and then and how that would work? Right, I would definitely say being proactive is the key, and so um, predicting. I mean, we can all, we all know kids, our kids that we work with or that we have fairly well, and knowing when they might, we might be vulnerable to give in and then being proactive and setting that situation up ahead of time. So for example, if I know my nieces love a particular kind of candy, I might set the behavioral expectation before we go to the grocery store and also let them know, okay, you're going to be able to choose from this or this so that they, we, I set a situation up where they can be successful. And then I also have to be willing if they do throw the tantrum to put my embarrassment on hold and make sure that I stick consistently to whatever I set up proactively. Because in behavior science, they call that intermittent reinforcement or unpredictable reinforcement. So if we can't be consistent with what we set up and we will give in, then that just makes the behavior stronger and stronger and stronger. So every single time you go to the grocery store, be expecting to have that tantrum versus, okay, I'm not going to, I'm going to put my blinders on and I'm not going to be embarrassed and I'm going to be consistent. And if you don't intermittently reinforce or randomly reinforce that behavior, it is going to go away much quicker. So I always say in the long haul, your embarrassment is going to be a lot less if you set that up ahead of time and stick to it. Now you mentioned too briefly the uh, the notion of being consistent. I think in your book you you the the way you describe consistency is you said essentially being consistent is a way to build trust. It's funny because I just read uh, Tools of Titans. I, I actually that's the episode that recently came out. Tools of Titans over and over in the wealth section from famous entrepreneurs and businessmen you'll hear over and over. It doesn't matter what you know; it's what you do consistently. Consistently, and I like I like that it's sort of being that theme's being repeated there as well as in in child psychology. Can you tell us a little bit more about how consistency builds trust and why it's so important? Absolutely. What they're finding, even so, you, I'm sure you know that trauma informed care is a big a big topic these days. So even when you're talking about someone that has experienced trauma, um, what they what they need and want is to be able to predict their environment. And so sometimes we think, oh, we're being strict. And I said, you're not. I never use the word strict. I say I use the term kind but firm. And so I'm going to let you know ahead of time how I'm going to behave. And we could even role play situations. You know, ask me all the questions you want to ask me, but I am going to do that consistently because I care about you and because I'm going to give you what you need which is consistency. Now, when we have behaviors, we think, oh, they don't want that. But what they're doing is testing to see, are you going to follow through and do what you say? And that's what builds trust over time. Because if you're going to behave the same way or respond the same way, 
they can predict, they know. And so that builds that relationship, especially if you can do it in a way that's kind but firm and gives them the message, I care too much about you not to be consistent, not to be predictable. I see. All that right. answer your question? Yes, absolutely. I sure. now I also want to talk about punitive approaches to negative behavior. It's a, a, again something that you mentioned. Tell us about punitive approaches and what you you know what are their issues and what you recommend instead. Okay. Yep. Okay. So when you're talking about punishment, um, it's really really important to be cl- to be clear on our terminology. So as a board certified behavior analyst. What I know is that punishment happens after behavior, and we want that behavior to decrease in the future. So we want our responses to problem behavior to have what I call a punitive effect, but just using punishment, like if you think about old school spanking or um, grounding, those things that are either taking away something somebody likes or adding something they don't like um, for the sake of controlling behavior alone is, is not effective. And it's not effective because it doesn't teach them what to do instead. And all behavior has purpose or has function. It's trying to meet a need. So if you, I always say, you never say no without a go. I'm not going to tell you not to do this unless I teach you what I want you to do instead. So when we're, we want it to decrease, but we want our responses to be instructional. So I don't like to use the term punishment because it's often misunderstood. I usually use the term um, logical and natural consequences or logical and natural undesirable consequences. And that comes from early training that I had, if you're familiar with Jim Fay's Love and Logic, um, that I stick to pretty consistently. I'm, I've not really varied much over the years that we're going to respond in a way that teaches you what I want you to do instead, but I'm not going to respond in a way that's reinforcing. So a great example would be Um, suspension, school suspension. Lots and lots of um, administrators will suspend, but I know a lot of kids that like to go home. So it's not really a punitive consequence and it doesn't teach them anything. It just sends them away. So that would be a a non-example of of what to do. And then I know you, well, and then let's talk about a, so that's the the go home suspension is a non-example. What would be an alternative that would work and how would it show, you know, can we have an example where you actually do model or show what to do in that case? Okay, good question. Um, So taking that school example, I pretty much advocate for no suspension. Um, I know for some kids it is effective, but I think we could do better um, restitutional programs, which would be more like in-school suspension, but it would have to be designed right. When I use the term in-school suspension, a lot of times what I see is people will have an in-school suspension program, but it's still not having a decreasing effect. It is reinforcing. So kids will go and they'll sleep or they'll talk to their friends or get help with their homework. And it isn't having the intended uh, intended effect on the behavior. So I always make sure if we do some kind of in-school suspension program, I call it something different. Probably my most common term is I call it teach and protect. And so I say the number one goal for you at school is you need to be safe and you need to be learning and everything else is a bonus. And I design their environment in such a way that it is not reinforcing or very limited in reinforcement. So very little attention They're They don't have access to other kids. They don't have access to special activities, but we just focus intently on what is the replacement behavior. So whatever their infraction was, they have to um, engage in activities that would practice what to do instead. So maybe they have role play activities. 
maybe they have what I call mediation essays. Um, a really, really excellent book is um, Alternatives to Suspension by Boys Town Press. And it gives a lot of good examples of what you could do instead that's instructional. So it teaches them whatever that missing skill is. That's cool. That almost reminds me of the strategy in power of habit or just general habit replacement. It's it's like when you want to remove a negative habit instead of simply stopping altogether, like let's say negative things like uh, biting your nails, instead of simply stopping stopping the behavior or trying to do that, you replace it with something so that you can add and, yes. that, and that, right. So it's, it almost reminds me of that. That's, that's very interesting. Yes, absolutely. And that's true across all behavior change. It's very true in psychology. Um, John Mag, who was my, which I mentioned was my uh, master's program mentor does a lot with that. So um, making it inconvenient, replacing it with something that's, that's similar. So we always, it's always easier to have a replacement behavior if you're trying to fade away uh a problematic behavior in your life. Now, so we're talking about behavior. I had a question that I wanted you to just generally explain. It's something you talk about in your book. What is behavior-specific praise? Behavior-specific praise, actually, I've now changed my terms a little bit because people don't like the word praise. Um, it's basically feedback or narration, um, noticing uh, more positives than negative. So what we tend to do in society is we t- tend to give a lot of attention to the negative and we tend to not give attention to the positive, but rather than just saying good job or way to go, that's not instructional. And I talked earlier about how it needs to be instructional, but to be very specific about, I like the way you are, you know, speaking in a calm voice that, that, you know, make sure that we're communicating with each other. I like the way that you're making eye contact with me. That example isn't always appropriate if somebody's on the spectrum, but you know, for the sake of this conversation, making eye contact with me shows me that you're listening. Um, I can tell you're really on task. I know that you're learning as much as you can and making good use of your time. So kind of being, being aware and mindful and noticing things that people are doing well and then also why that's important, not just because it makes me happy because then we just have people pleasers, but rather what outcomes is it leading to that's positive. And so, and this is behavior specific as opposed to outcome specific prey or outcome specific, let's say recognition. Or general. So yeah, or general, like, yeah, like, like you won the game. Okay. Well, why is that important? That's, yeah, you're getting attention, but for what purpose? It would be more, I like that you were a good sport. I'm sure that made the other person feel valued, you know, more focusing on a little bit of the intrinsic and what I think we all kind of strive for versus great job, high five, which is too general, or you're, you're beating everybody else, which competition can be very healthy, but it also can be very unhealthy if people are just trying to win for the sake of winning. Right. This reminds me of something that I've read over and over, and I think it's, it's constantly repeated, which is that, and I, I want, I'd love to get your thoughts or your opinion on, on specifically why this is constantly hear that you shouldn't tell kids or people in general, I suppose, that they're smart, that you're really intelligent, but instead it should be, again, basically more based around uh, particular activities or behavior. What are the dangers of telling a child that he's, he or she is smart? I think if you're not giving them specifics and about why, to just use general terms like you're smart, um, they, that becomes their identity. I'm smart, I'm smart, I'm smart. Um, and then if something happens that isn't 
reinforcing that, that's very threatening. It also it also makes people, like I said, engage in that non-healthy competition. So I want to be smarter than everybody else. Well, you don't have to be. You, you need to be you need to be good at the things that you're good at. And we all kind of have a different kind of piece of that puzzle. So everybody has strengths. Everybody has skills that are valuable versus I'm the best. I'm beating everybody else because then they become addicted to that type of reinforcement. And that type of reinforcement is what leads to negative behavior on the other end of things. When you see unsportsmanlike conduct or you see, um, you know, um, trying to think of cheating, when you see unethical behavior for the sake of I want to win above all costs, that's when you see that type of problematic behavior because that's what's been said and reinforced. But if you say you're really good at problem solving or um, I'm impressed with your writing, that's that you, you, you paint a great picture with your writing. I really enjoyed reading that. You know, some of those things that say, okay, this is valuable for the sake of this reason versus I'm going to be better than everybody else. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Does that yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's now quickly shift to the importance of social skills as far as reining in behavior or cultivating positive behavior. What is the importance of what are the importance of social skills and also what are the essentially like what are the logistics of teaching social skills? Um, so social skills when you talk about um, when we're sending kids out into the work environment. What employers are saying is it's not Academics that we're concerned about. It's more the soft skills. So working with other people, um, interacting, effectively communicating, all those things would be social skills. The other thing that I would, I usually call it social slash behavioral skills because the other big areas, uh, executive functioning skills, which is problem solving, planning, um, organization, um, time management, all of those types of things. Those are the things that, that adults, young adults tend to be missing that keeps them from being successful um, in a more post-school environment. So the logistics of that is you can teach it just like you teach academics. We just have to make sure that we are, I always say embedding it rather than having, you know, you can have kids go to a social skills class and that certainly can be part of it, but more just embedding it throughout the school day with social emotional learning. And a lot of people get a little nervous about that, that type of, of language because they think we're teaching them values and that's not what we're teaching. We're teaching what I just call basic everyday interaction skills. I think we can all come to an agreement of there's a respectful way to interact with other people. There's a not respectful way. And if you think about what kids are being completely immersed in when we're talking about media, when we're talking about video games, you know, all of the things they spend their time immersed in, it is not appropriate social and behavioral skills. And, and we think that they can make that distinction. And, and sometimes they can, and sometimes they can't. And usually when they can't, it's because they don't have enough of the modeling of the appropriate. And so because we're a country of free and appropriate education for everybody, I think public schools are a great way to kind of, I think it's a part of just good civics. It's how to be a good responsible citizen. And I think that it can be vetted as such in our what I call our tier one curriculum. And then as kids need more, they certainly can be in individual small groups or have individual social skills training as well. And you also mentioned executive functioning, and I know you focus on that as well in the book. And that is something that I see as being a a major issue with not only, well, it's just something that constantly crops up. And especially with some of my individual tutoring clients, 
what what skill I know that you show really cool illustrations of checklists and different scheduling scheduling uh, vehicles. What is your what are you, what would be your first tip or t- set of tips for parents listening right now where their children are having some executive functioning issues? What resources would you recommend or would you recommend they get a coach? How would you approach that? Um, I think that there's definitely now cropping up executive functioning coaches. Um, but I think a lot of it is visual supports, more structure, uh, more proactive structure, paying attention to the, those things. You know, how long do you think it's going to take? What do you think we need to do first? Breaking things into steps. So it's something that can be embedded fairly easily without spending a lot of money. I think um, there's several different uh, great resources. Um, Lost at School is one. Smart but Scattered is another. Those are two books. And just looking online and just educating yourself on what are the executive functioning skills. And then when you become familiar with it, you, then you start noticing it all the time that, okay, we didn't plan ahead. We didn't, um, that person has a difficult time getting started. So I need to help them get started with something, making a plan for execution, you know, and, and talking about why that's important and, and just embedding it throughout the day. Got it. And I want to touch on one more topic before we wrap up. And that is this really cool notion of the where, where you talk about the importance of providing students with choices. And it, it, it sort of bleeds into the into the issue of differentiated learning and how that, that can sometimes be difficult, of course, for educators with, within specific curriculums. But I think it's it's such a great point to try and provide some sort of choice or freedom or flexibility for students. So I think that they feel empowered and at least a little bit more involved with a particular task or assignment that may not seem so appealing. So can you talk about, first of all, the importance of choice and then how to implement it in school? But also, I think it'd be very interesting to implement the idea of choice at home as well. Absolutely. And I think giving research shows very clearly that even if you give two choices that are somewhat unpreferred, that just by embedding choice, you're going to get a higher, higher compliance rate because what we do not like to be controlled. Human beings do not like to be controlled. We like to have control. So even if I'm saying, do you want to do math now or in two minutes? Do you want to go to bed now or do you need 10 more minutes? Simple things like that, that really don't impact, you know, their performance per se will lead to more cooperative relationships because you're giving them some sort of say. So I say the more you can embed choice, whether it's the order that things are done, um, what do you have for a meal, um, you know, clothing choices, you know, say they're going somewhere with, they have limited clothing choices, you know, they have school uniforms, you still have, do you want to wear a skirt or do you want to wear pants? You know, you still have something that you can control. I think that's extremely powerful because especially at school, we have this um, history of you're going to do it because I say so. You're going to do it because I'm in charge and at home too, to a certain extent, people don't like that. Um, one thing that I recommend to my own family, as a matter of fact, is when they have kids that have weekend chores, that you give them a list and then you give them a time frame. but you let them choose in that time frame what order they're going to do things exactly when they're going to do things so that they can plan their own day. You know, if I want to wait till the last 30 minutes and do it all at once, that's fine. As long as I stay within the boundaries. So I've seen a huge um, improvement in my own family on compliance with chores if we can do it that way. I love that because it's – and actually, I mean, of course, this same rationale applies to adults or really anybody. But I like that because it's it's a change or a modification that 
really doesn't take that much effort on the teacher or the parent's part, but can ha- but can have some nice substantial effects. And it really doesn't change that much, really doesn't change anything, if not improves things as far as the production or output. So I think that's such a great suggestion. Right. Uh, Dr. The key is just to be proactive, proactive versus reactive. Right. So Dr. Auden, I want to thank you for coming on today. This has been really educational for me, and I hope all my listeners really enjoyed it as well. I'm sure they did. If they want to reach out to you, check out your books or check out the other, uh, basically check out any other literature or things, content that you've created, how can they do that? Um, right now, just email me. I, like I said, I don't have a website or anything at this point. That's kind of in the works, but um, I am happy to answer emails. So it is my first and last name. It's K-A-Y-E-O-T-T-E-N at M-A-C dot com. All right. And all that information will be provided in the show notes. So don't worry if you didn't write that down. You can just go to scalarlearning.com. Go to the podcast section and you'll find it written up in the show notes. Again, new episodes are coming out every Monday on the regular. So make sure to check back for more good information related to education. Thank you guys so much for joining. I'll see you guys next time. Take it easy. Learning, give me that scale.